It's been over a month since October 7th, when dozens of fighters for the group Hamas attacked Israel. For Israelis, the attack, which left at least 1,200 people dead and saw 242 people kidnapped, is one of the worst incidents of violence many there have seen. Since then, the Israeli government, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has declared war on Hamas. Hamas will understand that by attacking us, they've made a mistake of historic proportions. We will exact a price that will be remembered by them and Israel's other enemies for decades to come. In the month since that attack, Israeli strikes have resulted in the deaths of thousands of Palestinian civilians. As of this broadcast, the death toll is estimated to be at least 11,000 people. The United States government, along with the governments of several major world powers, have pledged to support Israel's right to defend itself. But many, including the UN Secretary General and several humanitarian groups, have said the military strikes have gone too far. Last week, both President Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken rejected the idea of a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas to end the fighting. Here's Blinken last week in Jordan. It's our view that uh, a ceasefire now would simply leave Hamas in place, able to regroup and repeat what it did on October 7th. Though the Israeli government has agreed to military pauses to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza, Netanyahu has rejected calls for a total ceasefire without the release of all Israeli hostages. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. This is who we're going to talk about today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This is a person who really wants to project that he's in charge and project that he is tough and that he's not going to back down. And for decades now, Benjamin Netanyahu has been at the center of Israeli politics. And he's been divisive and he's been abrasive but he has been the very center of the Israeli political system, and everything else has revolved around him. Griff Whitty is an editor at The Post and was once The Post's Jerusalem bureau chief. He spent a lot of time reporting on Netanyahu and interviewed him. So I wanted to sit down with Griff to try to understand the man leading Israel. And he is someone who, for I think his supporters, has really come to embody the Israeli state itself. He's someone who is really seen as this father protector figure who can defend the nation. But we're seeing right now that that entire persona is coming into question. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Monday, November 13th. I'm your guest host, Lillian Cunningham. Today, we'll unpack Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's past to see what it can tell us about the way he's leading Israel today.
So Griff, I know that it's obviously impossible for us in the time we have to get into all of the historical complexities of Benjamin Netanyahu's life and Israel's politics, but I do want to start with just some of the basics. So could you explain the structure of Israel's government? So Israel has a government that is parliamentary. It's the Knesset, which is the parliament of Israel. There are 120 members in that parliament, and whichever party is dominant in the Knesset gets to run the government. And that's easier said than done, especially nowadays, because Israel has a deeply polarized political system. There are quite a number of parties in the Knesset, and so there is rarely, if ever, a party that has a majority in the Knesset. And so it's all about building a coalition. So the members of the Knesset vote on who becomes prime minister. Is that right? In in order to become prime minister, you have to have the president of Israel tap you to lead a government. And then as the leader of a party that is sometimes the largest and sometimes is not, you have to create that coalition. And so you have to get enough parties on board for your government in order to become prime minister and govern. Benjamin Netanyahu is the current prime minister, and he has served in that role for a long time time now. Why don't we just start with what's his political party? How would you describe his politics? So Netanyahu is the leader of the Likud party, which is the main right-wing party in Israel. And in that role, he's really championed the use of the Israeli military, Israeli special forces, Israeli intelligence services to deter Israel's many enemies in the region. The application of power is the most important thing in winning the war on terrorism. If I had to say, what are the three principles of winning the war on terror? It's like, what are the three principles of real estate, the three L's, location, location, location? The three principles of winning the war on terror are the three W's, winning, winning, and winning. He is the longest tenured prime minister in Israel's history. He is the first prime minister of Israel to be born in Israel. He was born in Israel very, very shortly after the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. And when he first came to power in the 1990s, he was the youngest prime minister in Israel's history. And now here we are decades later, and and he's among the oldest. So how many years total has he served? He served about 16 years as prime minister, and he's done it over the course of several different stretches. So he had that period during the 1990s, the late 1990s, where he was governing. And then he returned to power in 2009, about a decade after his first stint. And he's held the job off and on ever since then. So I always feel like in order to understand someone in power and to get a sense of their leadership style, that it's actually really helpful to rewind all the way back to their childhood and to the years before they entered politics. Can you give me a sense of, you know, some of those formative years for Netanyahu before he became a politician? So Bibi, and everyone calls him Bibi, that's his nickname. He is someone who had a very cosmopolitan upbringing in many ways. He, as I mentioned, was born in Israel, but he lived for part of his youth in the United States. He spent part of his teen years living just outside of Philadelphia, Mm. and he was educated in part at MIT. So this is someone who had spent a lot of time as a young person getting to know the United States, really understanding U.S. politics, understanding U.S. culture. 
We admire America not only for its dynamism and for its power and for its wealth. We admire America for its moral force. As Jews and as Israelis, we're proud that this moral force is derived from the Bible. His father was a history professor, and as a young person, he did a number of things, including something that nearly all Israelis do, which is serve in the military. Benjamin Netanyahu was a commando, and his brother was as well. And his brother was killed in the line of duty. He was killed during an infamous operation in Uganda to free Israeli hostages who had been taken captive. And how do you think that experience kind of shaped who he'd become as a leader? Benjamin Netanyahu very much believes that the state of Israel is vulnerable to attack, that it is only in existence because of its ability to stand up and fight. With the rebirth of the Jewish state, the Jewish people only two generations ago were once a powerless people, defenseless against those who sought our destruction. Today, we have both the right and the capability to defend ourselves. And this is a theme that runs throughout his life. And it's an idea that continued to be powerful during his tenure in New York at the United Nations, where he was Israel's representative. Those who launch terrorists, those who perpetrate terrorist actions, are themselves uh, legitimate target of response. They are not innocent civilians. So there are forms... He also served in Washington at the Israeli embassy. And he is someone who has consistently taken a very hard line on the need for Israel to be strong, to do what he sees as necessary to defend the nation. So in the late 1980s, he entered the Knesset, um, the legislature, and then by 1996, he's prime minister for the first time. What did he sort of enter into as leader? So during the 1990s, there was a period where there was real hope and real optimism and a real sense that there could be a negotiated solution to this long-running conflict. And uh, you, of course, have had periods of really intense violence throughout Israel's history and throughout the Palestinian struggle for nationhood. But the 1990s was a period in which there was progress on the diplomatic front. There were the Oslo Accords, of course. Which were what? Which was in 1993, and this was an agreement in which Israel and the Palestinians, as represented by Yasser Arafat, agreed on a path forward. If you go back and listen to the signing of that agreement back in 1993, you can hear the real sense of optimism. Here's Shimon Peres, one of the negotiators, for example. What we are doing today is more than signing an agreement, it is a revolution. Yesterday, a dream. Today, a commitment. The Israeli and the Palestinian peoples who fought each other for almost a century have agreed to move decisively on the path of dialogue, understanding, and cooperation. Uh, of course, a lot 
still needed to be worked out that had not been settled in those accords. So Itzhak Rabin was the prime minister of Israel, who was the country's leader at the time of the Oslo Accords. Mm -hmm. And not long after the Oslo Accords were signed, he was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli extremist. The people of Israel, who've never before lost a head of government to an assassin's gun, are tonight queuing silently in their tens of thousands to say farewell to Yitzhak Rabin. He was shot dead just over 24 hours ago by a Jewish extremist shortly after addressing a peace rally. There were elections scheduled to take place a few months after Rabin's assassination. But before those elections could take place, Hamas conducted several major terrorist attacks. And the mood in Israel very abruptly shifted from one of optimism and hope that the Oslo Accords could be put into place and that you could have a diplomatic solution to one of real fear and concern and a desire for stepping up efforts on the security front. Netanyahu was really able to position himself during this period against the Oslo Accords and really spoke to the sense on the right in Israel that these negotiations were not going to lead anywhere good. Uh, there's been a sea change of opinion in Israel uh, from very strong enthusiasm for Oslo 1, the first signing of the agreement with the PLO, to uh, lack of enthusiasm, indeed very sharp criticism that is voiced from everyone, the president uh, down to grassroots. And so what was his approach to the Israeli-Palestinian relationship when he's in office that first time as prime minister? Well, he was under a lot of pressure to allow the negotiations to continue and to try to pursue that course. And he did pursue that course for a while. You had, during his tenure in the 1990s, the Y River Accords. And these were a follow-on to the Oslo Accords. They were yet another attempt to jumpstart this process of resolving the conflict with a lasting peace agreement. But it has been said here, and it's true, that we are just at the beginning or maybe in the middle of the road to a permanent peace. We will soon embark on negotiations for permanent peace settlement between our two peoples. And it's not that Netanyahu was necessarily extremely excited by the prospect of negotiation and diplomacy and doing a deal, but he was pressured into it and he, he mm. went along with it. And that was the spirit of the moment that there had to be an opportunity given to diplomacy to see if it could succeed. By the late 1990s, his first sort of run as prime minister comes to an end. How does it end? What happens? So he lost an election, uh, and he lost it very badly. And uh, this was 1999, and his Likud party was defeated by the Labor Party. And he was about 50 years old at the time, and it seemed for a while like he was washed up as a politician. He went into private business, and he was not active politically for a while. But his time came back around again. After the break, we'll hear about the challenges Netanyahu faced before the Hamas attacks and what it means for his political survival. We'll be right back. Okay, so Griff, Benjamin Netanyahu leaves office in 1999, and then he comes back. He's reelected 
prime minister 10 years later in 2009. What brought him back? So I was in Israel at the time that he came into office in an election that followed what we now think of as the first Gaza war. So this was early 2009, and the prime minister at the time, Ehud Olmert, had launched an attack on Gaza in response to Hamas rocket fire. And this was a time when the focus in Israel was squarely on how to keep the country secure through military means. The Israeli military had pulled out of Gaza four years prior in 2005. Netanyahu had been a strong critic of that decision, and he called it a disaster for security. But no country would be able to, would suffer 6,000 rockets that have been launched from Gaza at Israel. 6,000 rockets, day in, day out. You've got 30 seconds to get into a shelter. And it doesn't happen just one day. It happens the next day and the next day. And the rocket fire from Gaza would seem to have validated that viewpoint. And there was a mood in Israel, if in the late 90s when he had been governing the first time around, there was still some space being given for the possibility of diplomacy and peace negotiations. I would say that by 2009, even though there was still a process in place, there was much, much less optimism. And there was much more of a sense that Israel needed to be hard-headed about this and realistic. And Bibi spoke to that. And he spoke to this sense that the country had an enemy in Hamas in Gaza, that it had enemies to the north in Hezbollah. I'm stressing this because it's important to understand one simple point. There is no moral symmetry. There is no moral equivalence between Israel and the terrorist organizations in Gaza. He speaks to these fears that the country could face existential threats from its neighbors, from others in the region. He also has been a major force behind settlement expansion in the West Bank. Can you say a little bit more about settlement construction and this issue of Israeli settlement? So Netanyahu and his allies in Likud and a lot of his allies in other right-wing parties in Israel, it is a major priority of theirs to settle the West Bank and to build new homes for Jewish Israelis, to build new communities for Jewish Israelis on land that Palestinians have claimed for a future Palestinian state and that under international agreements has been earmarked for a future Palestinian state. Well, they're built, you know where they're built? They're built in places that are going to remain in Israel under any fair-minded person knows that the places that are in question are basically suburbs of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Nobody expects us to dismantle these places. So during Netanyahu's very long tenure as Israeli prime minister, we've seen this tremendous change in the facts on the ground. What was once land that might, at least theoretically, be part of a Palestinian state is now filled with Jewish citizens of Israel who live there, who work there, who commute from there to Jerusalem, to Tel Aviv. And Netanyahu has been a major proponent of going forward with settlement construction, settlement expansion, despite the fact that uh, U.S. policy, the U.N., the European Union have been sharply critical. He has basically gone ahead and said, who is going to stop me? Who's going to stop me from doing this? And the answer is no one has. 
So did you see a real difference between the sort of the Netanyahu, who was prime minister in the 90s and sort of his approach and the Netanyahu who came into power in 2009 and has remained prime minister since, essentially? I think there's been a big difference, but I also think that there's just a big difference in Israeli society. And you see very much that Netanyahu's evolution mirrors the evolution of public opinion in Israel, where there had been once an appetite for peace negotiations, for diplomacy, for negotiation. Now there's a much more cynical take, a perspective of, you know, these negotiations are not worth the time, that they all they do is allow our enemies time to rearm. And we are naive to think that this is going to achieve anything. And what we ultimately have to do at the end of the day is arm ourselves and be prepared to use force to achieve our ends. There have been so many elections in Israel in recent years that it's it's hard to keep count. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the upshot after nearly each one of these elections is that Netanyahu has been able to hang on to power. He certainly has no broad mandate. Israel is this very fragmented society. But there are enough people who want him leading the country, who do see him as this guarantor of security, and who don't trust other people political parties with the defense of the country. He's been in power for well over a decade. What's his image been on the world stage? What's his relationship been like with American presidents during that time? There had been before Netanyahu a truism of Israeli politics, which is that if you are a prime minister of Israel, you need to make friends with the United States president, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, because ultimately, at the end of the day, Israel needs to have an ally in the White House. It can't afford to alienate the president. Netanyahu really challenged that. After Obama took office, his administration reached out to Palestinian leaders. He wanted to restart the peace process, and he wanted to negotiate with Iran, something that Netanyahu strongly opposed. And this clash went public. Here's Obama in 2015. He's responding to criticisms that Netanyahu had been making about Obama's negotiations. But on the core issue, which is how do we prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, which would make it far more dangerous and would give it scope for even greater action in the region, the prime minister didn't offer any viable alternatives. These two did not get along at all, and and neither have Biden and Netanyahu, but also in terms of Netanyahu's policies, these policies of settlement expansion, this impatience and dismissive approach toward diplomatic solutions. By contrast, Netanyahu went to great lengths to befriend President Trump and really went out of his way to show Trump that at a time when so many world leaders were shunning him, were dismissing him, were refusing to really engage with him, Netanyahu was more than willing to engage with Trump and really went all in on Trump. Mr. President, you've, uh, you've shown great clarity and courage 
in confronting this challenge head on. You call for confronting Iran's terrorist regime, preventing Iran from realizing this uh, terrible deal into a nuclear arsenal. And invested a lot in that relationship in a way that became quite partisan and a, a way that went beyond what any Israeli leader had done previously. You started to get at this just before, but maybe just tell me a little bit more about within Israel, the way that he has been seen over the years and the degree to which he's been well-liked or the degree to which that's sort of a, a complicated question for Israelis. At the end of the day, he's polarizing. He has been in power for so long, uh, but he's been reviled by a large segment of Israeli society for all of that time. He's managed to cling to power only by some very very savvy tactical deal-making among the various parties that, that are represented in the Israeli Knesset. And he's never been beloved. He is someone who uh, is certainly seen as a strong leader by Likud members, by people of the right, but by a large segment of Israeli society, they see him as, as a really divisive and an abrasive force. And in the year or so before the current war, Netanyahu faced some really big challenges. He was facing corruption charges over alleged bribes, among many other things. He denies doing anything wrong, but there's a trial against him that's now been delayed. And then in January, he and his justice minister unveiled reforms to overhaul Israel's judicial system. These are changes that would give Netanyahu's government the right to pretty fundamentally change the democratic system in Israel. And critics said these changes were anti-democratic and that they were really aimed at allowing Netanyahu to escape any kind of punishment for his alleged wrongdoing. So in this time, there's just a lot of public distrust building against him. And the protests against these judicial reforms were just massive, historic. And these large protests continued right into the fall, this was one of the major challenges facing Netanyahu right up until October 7th when Hamas attacked Israel and everything changed. So let's talk about this present moment. How has he been handling the Hamas attacks? What do, you know, by and large, Israelis sort of feel about his handling of it and, and his leadership through this moment? I would say it's been a quite stumbling response for the colossal failure of Israel to defend itself on October the 7th as someone who makes himself out to be this national protector. He wasn't able to safeguard the nation that day. Here he is on ABC News last week responding to his own role in what happened. Do you believe that you should take any responsibility? Of course. That's not a question. It's going to be resolved after the war. Uh, I think there'll be time to allocate that. We're all sitting here. The responsibility of government, the responsibility of me as prime minister, is to protect the people of Israel. We could not achieve that, clearly. Uh, we didn't achieve that. Netanyahu really didn't step up in a big way and lead the nation. And he's facing a lot of criticism now for that failure. I think that he's also facing a lot of criticism for not only the way that he has governed in the aftermath of that 
massacre, but also the decisions that he made leading up to it. He and his government were so focused on the West Bank. They were so focused on settlement expansion. And they believed that Hamas could be contained. He's been very, very focused on marginalizing the Palestinian Authority, which is the more moderate, more secular power that that is theoretically at least in control in the West Bank. He's been really focused on on marginalizing them, keeping them off balance, keeping them from gaining any kind of real legitimacy. And he has said in private encounters with people, he said, we really see Hamas as the representative of the Palestinian people, and we don't mind uh, Hamas being representative because it allows the Israelis to not have to do negotiations, and it doesn't necessitate any kind of hard choices in terms of diplomatic trade-offs or concessions that you might have to make. So Netanyahu's approach was to take advantage of this continued split between Gaza and the West Bank. He was trying to keep the Palestinian Authority weak, but he was also allowing Hamas to remain and to grow stronger. It seems as though the Israeli security apparatus was just not focused in the right place. They had no idea that Hamas could mount the kind of attack that it did. And there probably is a lot of blame to go around for why that is. But it seems quite likely that a lot of the blame is going to be placed directly at the feet of Benjamin Netanyahu. As you watch Netanyahu's response right now to Hamas and Gaza, does this Netanyahu look different to you from the one you covered and you observed, you know, years ago when you were in Israel? You still see the bravado, you know, which is such a feature of of Netanyahu, but Israelis who have followed his career and observed him for a lot longer than I have say that he just doesn't seem to be on his game right now, that he seems to have lost a step. Perhaps it's just the extraordinary horror of what happened on October 7th. Perhaps it's that he's run out of good options. Despite his tough guy image, he was someone who was always very hesitant about getting involved in a ground war in Gaza. He recognized that a campaign like that would be very costly and has has been reluctant to initiate it. But he's left himself with not a lot of choice at this point. You see a lot of bravado from him, but you don't see necessarily the smart tactical maneuvering that has defined a lot of his career. You know, he is this consummate survivor, and yet politically it's really hard to see how he survives this. Thank you so much, Griff. This is so insightful. Thank you for the time and for all the reporting you've done on this over the years. Thank you so much. Griff Whitty is an editor at The Post and was once The Post's Jerusalem bureau chief. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh and mixed by Sam Baer. It was edited by Monica Campbell. We have some exciting news to share about Washington Post subscriptions and audio. If you're already a Washington Post subscriber, 
you can now get access to Washington Post podcasts ad-free in Apple Podcasts. And there are more audio perks around the corner. So connect your Post subscription in Apple Podcasts and stay tuned for more subscriber-only audio benefits, like exclusive and early access episodes to our new investigative podcast series, The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Those episodes come out weekly every Wednesday, but if you're a subscriber, you can get those episodes two days early on Mondays. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Washington Post, this is a great time to start. You can get access to all The Washington Post has to offer, and now you'll also get ad-free podcasts and more premium audio perks. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or by following the link in our show notes. I'm your guest host, Lillian Cunningham. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.